All right, let's begin with prayer. Dear God, as we begin the last of this series in an attempt to apply our knowledge to the events in Christ's life, especially that lead up to his crucifixion, I pray that you will be with us in a special way, that you will guide us, help us to see the things that you want us to see. In Jesus' name, amen. So <clears throat> this is part four of, the, of this uh, series. And just an overview, all that we have studied previously in the three parts that we've went through about Assyrio-Babylonia and the Bible has prepared us to learn about how Assyrio-Babylonia influenced Judaism and Christianity. In this part, we will examine how Jesus took on Babylon in many of his teachings. We will then demonstrate that those who rejected and crucified Jesus acted as they did because of the Assyro-Babylonian influences that pervaded their thinking. We will conclude with some sobering questions for our time. What did Babylon represent to John in Revelation? What does Babylon represent to us today? What does it mean to come out of Babylon now? But before we get into that, we need to look at Babylonian influences on Judaism. And I, you have this quote here from uh, Mark, uh, Markham J. Geller, who wrote these words. He's a Jewish scholar who has also has a training in the ancient Near East. Although much has been written regarding Greek influence on Judaism in the Hellenistic period, Relatively little attention has been paid to the profound influence of Babylonia upon the development of Judaism in the periods of the Mishnah and Talmud, partly because of the difficulties of dealing with Akkadian and even Sumerian texts. He goes on to argue that the use of Aramaic and Neo-Babylonian language, technical terms, came into Jewish documents from such fields as mathematics, medicine, magic, and theurgy, and even law. Furthermore, the Babylonian Talmud received clear echoes from Babylonia. I want to explain something before we go forward. It's true that the Mishnah and the Talmud were created much later than Jesus, but in many ways these works are the written formations of oral traditions that go back before Jesus' time. They came to be written down in the aftermath of the temple's destruction and the dispersion of the Jews away from Jerusalem in AD 70 to 135. In AD 135, as a result of the Bar Kokhba revolt, the Jews were expelled from Jerusalem, and Hadrian had the city plowed by oxen, then built a pagan city on top of it. Many Jews were taken into slavery or resettled in Egypt. When subsequent generation of Jews began to lose their knowledge of the laws, Jewish rabbis felt the need to write them down. So what I want to stress is that the development of the Mishnah and the Talmud uh, simply reflect the thinking and the developments in Judaism that go way, way back. And, and you'll see that uh, in the comparisons that I give. One of the most important and significant Babylonian influences on Judaism is the formation of the Sanhedrin. 
Babylonians referred to this body early on as the Kanishtu, a circle of priests. Since the Babylonian temple often served as a judicial capacity with judges, the Sanhedrin naturally took on this role. Indeed, priests had officiated somewhat as judges in pre-exilic times, but not nearly as extensively as they now did. And of course, the Sanhedrin is in part responsible for Jesus' death. In the keeping of the Sabbath, the Babylonians kept uh, evil days, the 17th, I'm sorry, the 7th, the 14th, 19th, and 21st, and 28th days of the lunar month. During these days, they were limited in what activities they could engage in unless lest they anger the gods. In addition, the 15th day of the month, the day of opposition between the moon and the sun, was called Shapatu. And some scholars, especially very preeminent ones, uh, relate this word to the word Shabbat. This day was referred to as the day of the resting of the heart. And that term, resting of the heart, uh, equals appeasement. Then we have rabbinic traditions. What was later to form the Mishnah and the Babylonian Talmud, the rabbis formulated using the Babylonian principle of expansionism. In other words, answering the question, to how many situations can this law be applied? So they would try to think of as many possible situations of the law and then write their verdicts on that. The 400-plus rules for keeping the Sabbath reflect this principle, as well as the Babylonian observance of the evil days. And then there's the lex talionis, which is the law of retaliation, the eye-for-eye, tooth-for-tooth law. Long before Moses, most ancient Mesopotamian laws were pecuniary, that is, they advocated fines for their penalties. Hammurabi brought in an innovation known as lex talionis, the law of retaliation, in which if a beam fell on an owner's house, killing his son, the son of the builder was to be put to death. There are three such laws in the Torah, but talio is restricted to the specific circumstances of the law. It was never a general or prevailing principle of Old Testament law. Jesus confronts this law head-on in Matthew, negating its use. Moses and Hammurabi. Moses' earliest role seemed to be first a deliverer and secondly a lawgiver. During the exile, the Jews turned to the law to substitute for temple worship and used the keeping it as a means of preventing divine anger. In the process, they reversed Moses' two roles in terms of priority. Moses became equal to Hammurabi. And by the way, if you think that's a little far-fetched since Hammurabi lived in 1750 BC, Nebuchadnezzar in the Neo-Babylonian period, which is the period of the exile, had his scribes copy Hammurabi's laws and viewed himself as another Hammurabi. So Hammurabi was alive and well, so to speak, in the time of the exile. In the role of the scribe, uh, during the Neo-Babylonian period, the scribe who served the courts changed from that of a writer to a writer who was also involved in judicial affairs, even operating at times as a judge. Similarly, there arose a group in Judaism called scribes, 
the Sadducees called them Pharisees. So when you see the scribes and Pharisees in Matthew or any of the Gospels, understand that Sadducees called them Pharisees, but they called themselves scribes. So scribes and Pharisees are, it should be translated scribes, even Pharisees, which is an appropriate translation for the word for and in Greek. Now we come to perceptions of misfortune. While the Old Testament shares the view popular in ancient Babylon that witness illnesses, tragedies, and other misfortunes served as divine punishment, the book of Job contends otherwise. Since it responds thoroughly to several Babylonian works, which is something I discovered when working on my dissertation on Job, its purpose is to extol Yahweh as superior over all other deities because he shows grace to evildoers and loves them equally with all his children. Nevertheless, in formative Judaism, the Babylonian view grew more prominent even than it had been in the pre-exilic periods. Uh, if you think about Leviticus and some of the laws about illness, they treat them somewhat as punishment because, or as a sin problem because you have to bring offerings if you get healed of leprosy, for example. But that's true also of emissions from human bodies. Um, so, it, but it, the law does not really prescribe them as punishment or treat them as punishment. That view really becomes more prominent during the, the post-exilic period. People seeking healing allowed priests the opportunity to condemn them and pronounce the verdict, you were born in sin to those who had their condition since birth. Now we come to signs. The Babylonian diviners read the signs of the natural world, sheep livers, heavenly bodies, oil on water, etc., to find out the will of the gods in the form of omens containing legal verdicts from the gods. The signs were either propitious or unpropitious, and persons affected should attempt negotiation with deities to change the outcomes. The term sign, itu in Babylonian, also referred to the characteristic of something or someone, even in terms of its nature or the proof of something. Though the Old Testament speaks of signs as proof or evidence as coming from God, when Jewish leaders demand of Jesus a sign, they do not seek merely divine evidence for Jesus' claims, but want a supernatural sign from heaven that will establish a legal verdict as to Jesus' nature. Jesus is not opposed to giving signs, such as the signs of his return, but he will not accede to demands from an adulterous generation, that is, a generation that has imbibed in the ideology of foreign gods, for a sign that represents a divine legal verdict that is up for negotiation in its outcome. Now we come to the approachability of God. The Babylonians saw the gods as alternately merciful and wrathful, not as beings whom the Babylonians could come close to as Jesus' disciples or the children could to Jesus. Now I'm quoting from Jean Botero. To be sure, these sovereign masters, that is the gods, had only rather good-natured dispositions with regard to humans, provided that everyone did his duty as a good servant. And people even believed they could count on the gods' help if they had not been good servants and were expecting to be punished. But any true communication with the gods was inconceivable 
so powerful and beyond reach were they believed to be. The only imaginable relationships were those of humble domestics versus vis-a-vis -vis lofty and distant masters, without any other pleasure than that of an accomplished duty. Jesus not only was approachable for personal conversation, he taught to be friend of all. Now we come to part two, where Jesus takes on Babylon. And the first issue is the blessings and curses of the covenant. The Sinai covenant in Deuteronomy resembled Hittite and later Neo-Assyrian treaties. What resembles the Neo-Assyrian treaties the most are lengthy curses in two sections and the content of some of the curses. In all treaties, the blessings, if there were any, and the curses came last. And by the way, there are no blessings in the Neo-Assyrian treaties, only curses. In Matthew, Jesus begins the new covenant with blessings, but does not use the Greek translation of the normal Hebrew word, Baruch, blessed. Instead, he applies the Greek translation of the favorite word in the Psalms for happy. This is the word for intrinsic blessings, rather than those bestowed externally on someone for something. In Matthew 23, Jesus utters the equivalent of curses, only they are woes, using again a term that more likely is a statement of intrinsic reality. Stipulations of the Covenant Jesus points to the internal nature of the law in terms of the heart. He rejects the lex talionis, that is the law of retaliation, that Hammurabi introduced into law for nonviolent resistance and points to loving one's enemies as the real test of whether one really keeps the law. In repetitious prayers, uh, Babylonian prayers tended to heap up empty phrases, especially in attempts to flatter deities and manipulate them into giving them what they wanted. Jesus gives a short, simple prayer of trust for his followers to use. And in terms of economy, in his new covenant, Jesus spends considerable space on the new kingdom of heaven. He extols inner over outward piety, giving without thinking about it, storing up treasure in heaven over hoarding on earth, trusting instead of worrying about economic matters. By turning over the temple's court tables, Jesus overturned the economic model that externalized religion instead of satisfying the heart and mind of the worshipers. Now we come to the atonement. Jesus nowhere speaks of his death in terms of appeasement or penal substitution. He tells his disciples that the unbelieving Jews will crucify him. He speaks in terms of drawing all to himself by his death. Jesus tells sinners that he would in no way cast out those who came to him. He told Nicodemus that anyone who trusted him would have eternal life. John says that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. None of this in any way None of this in any way represents anything Babylonian. Now we come to contrasting quotes that really exemplify the difference between Babylon and Jesus. Babylon has a statement, from a distance of one double mile, you scorch. From a distance of two double miles, you rage. Jesus says, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go also the second mile. In Babylon, during the Akitu festival, the great gods determined the fates for humans. The Euphrates River also served as a god of judgment during a trial by ordeal. 
But Jesus, but Jesus said to Nicodemus, God did not send his son in the world to judge the world, but to save the world. This is the judgment. Light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than light, for their deeds were evil. A Babylonian sufferer said, Who can learn the mind of the gods inside the heavens? Where did humans learn the divine decree of the gods? Jesus says, I do not call you servants any longer, because a servant or slave does not know what the master is doing. But I have called you friends because I have made known to you everything that I heard from my father. In Babylon, uh, the Babylonian work, uh, Atras Enuma Elish, um, it says, with his, that is Kingu's blood, he, Ea, made mankind. He imposed on man the forced labor of the gods, and thereby he released the gods. And in Atrahasis, we have the statement, let him, that is man, bear the yoke assigned by Enlil. Let man carry the toil of the gods. Jesus says, come unto me all who labor until exhausted and bear heavy loads, and I will give you rest. Put on my yoke and learn from me, because I am gentle and humble of heart, and you will find rest for yourselves. <clears throat> for my yoke is pleasant to wear, and my load is light. In Babylon, uh, we have a statement from Ezrahaddon to the non-Babylonians to whom he returned their letter. When the citizens of Babylon, who are my servants and love me, wrote to me, I opened their letter and read it. Now, you need to understand with this quote that the word love had a very different connotation in ancient Mesopotamia, especially in Babylonia and Assyria. The word love had the connotation of loyalty. It did not mean anything like affection. It did not mean anything like devotion other than external devotion. It didn't matter if you were afraid of the sovereign it didn't matter if you despised him in your heart. If you loved him, you would do what he said. This is different than how Jesus uses the word love. But this is a, a statement that's fairly close to what Ezra Haddon says. You are my friends. If, I do, if you do what I command you, this is my commandment. Love each other as I have loved you. And then we have to say, how did Jesus love them? It's quite obvious from the Gospels that love has a different connotation. And, and we're to love as he loved us, not love in terms of servile devotion. And then First uh, John 4.19 says, We love because he first loved us. And that is the source of love. Via Anshar, who was a Babylonian deity, Let's say, uh, we have the words, let him, that is Marduk, do on earth a likeness of what he has done in heavens. Let him assign the black-headed people to worship him. Which means that the black-headed people, which are the Mesopotamians, are the ones are were created to worship. They were created to serve. Uh, they were actually, in Babylonian view, created to be slaves of the gods. Jesus says, Pray in this way, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom done, come, your will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Similar in content, but a different tone, and if you go through the rest of the prayer, 
the differences become even more obvious. The gods say to Marduk in Babylon, Lord, spare the life of one who surrenders to you. Pour out the life of the God who sees evil. The gods then set a constellation before him in order, command, destroy, and create. May they be established. When he does this, they proclaim, Marduk is king. And of course, the words that we know so well from John 3.16 state something very different. God loved the world so much that he gave his only son that those who believe in him might not destroy themselves, but have eternal life. If you wonder at my translation, uh, the word destroy themselves is in the middle form in a Greek, and it literally means to destroy themselves, but most render it as passive. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came, they might have life and have it abundantly. So the Lord Marduk was pleased at the word of his father. Godlike, he spoke to his heart, to his father, Lord of the great gods, destiny of the great gods. If I am the one who will wreak vengeance on your enemies, keep you safe, capture Tiamat, then set up the assembly, proclaim my surpassing destiny. Let me determine the fates, the workings of my mouth like yours. Do not alter whatever I create. Let the utterance of my lips neither be overturned nor changed. When Jesus is on trial, we have this statement. Then Pilate went back to the governor's residence and summoned Jesus. Are you king of the Jews, he said. Do you say this of yourself or have others spoken concerning me? Pilate answered, I am not a Jew. Am I? Your nation and the high priest handed you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not from this world. If my kingdom were from this world, my servants would fight to keep from being handed over to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Pilate then said to him, so you are a king? Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this I was born, and for this I came into the world, to bear witness to the truth. The pronouns in italics are in emphasis in the Greek. Babylonian Marduk gathers together the great gods. He command, commanded pleasantly. He gave an order. Who was it who devised war and caused Tiamat to rebel and organize combat? Let him be handed over that I may make him bear his guilt. You may, we will dwell at rest. The Gigi, the great gods, answered him. It was King who devised war. He made Tiamat to rebel and organize combat. They bound him and held him before Ea. They imposed guilt. They severed his blood. Now, I couldn't find something from Jesus that would um, come close to be enough of a parallel to contrast it. But Isaiah 53, to me, contrasts it very nicely. Surely he bore our sicknesses. He is emphatic in the Hebrew. And he carried our sufferings, but we regarded him as one struck, one beaten by God and degraded. Yet he was wounded by our transgression, or by our rebellion. He was crushed by our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his wounds we ourselves are healed. In Enuma Elish, the gods say regarding Marduk, Previously Marduk was just the beloved son, but now he is your king. Take heed of his command. At Jesus' baptism, the voice from heaven said, You are my son, the beloved, with you. 
I am well pleased. Jesus is the counter Marduk. And to me, this is more significant and understandable if we suggest that the king of Babylon in Isaiah 14 is Marduk. Because one of his epithets is king of Babylon. And what I think actually happened is that Satan instigated the worship of Marduk so that he could be worshipped, that he really is Marduk. Babylonian omens, one of them says, if a city is situated on a hill, the inhabitants of that city will be depressed. If a city is situated in a valley, that city will be elevated. But you have a counter one. If a city lifts its head to heaven, that city will be abandoned. Jesus said, all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all who humble themselves will be exalted. You are the light of the world. A city on the hill cannot be hid. It's okay to shine if we, are, if we have the light. In Enum Elish again, Anshar says, the son who avenged us shall be the highest. His rule shall have priority. Let him have no rival. Jesus says to his disciples, you know that among the Gentiles, those whom they recognize as their rulers lorded over them, and their great ones are tyrants over them, but it is not to be so among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Again in Enuma Elish, Anshar says, Let him act as a shepherd over the black-headed people, his creation. Let him breathe on earth as freely as he always does in heaven. Jesus prayed to his father, Abba, for you all things are possible. Take this cup of suffering away from me. However, not what I want, but what you want. This is a contrast to what Anshar says. Uh, because uh, his desire to breathe freely on earth means that he has absolute control and is not willing to submit to anyone. In Babylon, the gods say to Marduk, Marduk, you are the most honored among the gods, therefore your order will not be annulled. It is in your power to exalt in the base. In a later passage, Baal, spare him who trusts you, but destroy the god who sets his mind on evil. The gods set a constellation between, before Marduk and order him command and bring about annihilation and recreation. When it, he does this, they say, Marduk is the king. Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they, they shall see God. Very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who come in before me are thieves and bandits, but the sheep did not listen to them. Whoever enters by me will be saved and will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes in only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. Once again in Enuma Elish, gods to Marduk say, Shrines for all the gods need provisioning that you may be established where their sanctuaries are. Uh, and my Akkadian professor called this equation theology, where all other gods are but aspects of Marduk. But notice how Jesus turns this on its head. Truly, I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me.
So Jesus counts those who worship him, those who follow him, as, as representatives of him, as, as though they were him. It's just a complete opposite to what Babylonians did. In Babylon, creation, annihilation, forgiveness, and exacting the penalty occur at Marduk's command, so let them fix their eyes on him. So this is, again, contrasting this deity. And by the way, Marduk is represented this way in, in some of the poetry as well, um, as having this dualistic character, uh, mercy and wrath, uh, creation and annihilation, forgiveness and exacting the penalty. Uh, very much opposite uh, dualistic characteristics. Jesus says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, a city that kills the prophets and stone those who are sent to it. How often have I desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under your, her wings, and you, would not, you are not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you are say, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Again in Enuma Elish, uh, let the sun Shamash of the gods be Marduk's name. May they always walk in his radiant light. On the people he created, Marduk imposed the work of the gods so the people for they were at rest. Creation, destruction, forgiveness, punishment, let it exist at his command. Let them look to him. Let the people extol him in the future. Mershakushu, the fierce yet judicious, angry yet relenting, with wide with his heart, his mood held in check. Indeed, the Lord of the gods of heaven and earth, their totality, the king at whose appearance, let the gods of above and below be in awe. And I pulled this out of Revelation. Well, actually out of Luke, and then I pulled it out of Revelation. They crucified Jesus there with criminals. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And then Revelation, you are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals for you are slaughtered. And by your blood, you ransom for God saints from every tribe and language and people and nation. Worthy is the lamb that was slaughtered to receive power and wealth, wisdom and might, honor and glory and blessing. No one in Babylonia is ever extolled for dying or for being slaughtered, especially if they are slaughtered as punishment. And in the Jews' eyes, Jesus was slaughtered as punishment. Now we come to section three. Babylon crucifies Jesus. The following issues led to Jesus' arrest and death. The way he kept Sabbath, he simply did not obey the laws that the Jews had created for keeping the Sabbath making it a, a taboo day, a day of taboos. He rejected their expansionistic laws. He rejected Hammurabi's law, Lex Talionis, law of retaliation. He downplays Moses when he has to discuss Moses. Um, I think that's in uh, John 8, his long discussion with the Jews. He re he rejects misfortune as divine punishment. And he refuses to bow to the scribes, that is Pharisees, 
and the Sadducees as authoritative. He refuses to prove a legally acceptable sign. He prefers friendship, conversation, intimacy, and portraying God as approachable, not angry and needing appeasement. He advocates love and service, not authority and power. In Babylon, the substitute king, the Sharpuki ritual, this is what we went over last time, existed in Babylon when Alexander the Great made his way toward that city. When the diviners discovered omens against the king, the Babylonian priests wanted to perform it on behalf of Alexander. Like most ancient Near Eastern cultures, the Babylonians believed that the equilibrium of the entire country rested on the king's safety. In a well-known perception, if the king went down, his city faced destruction. And as it turns out, apparently they were unable to do this for Alexander, whether he rejected it or whether they simply didn't get it done in time. But um, Alexander the Great died in Babylon. Caiaphas borrows this substitute king ritual to some extent when he says, so the chief, when he, when he said, what are we to do? Well, let me read the whole thing. So the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the council and said, what are we to do? This man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and destroy both our holy place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. You do not understand that it is better for you to have one man die for the people than to have the whole nation destroyed. So he's borrowing um, this idea of human sacrifice, which is found in the substitute king ritual. Um, whether he has a full consciousness of the Sharpuki ritual, it's hard to know. But uh, a lot of ancient memory is held to the present in ancient Near Eastern uh, concepts. That is, people handed down memories from generation to generation. So it's not impossible. We already illustrated that a little with uh, how Nebuchadnezzar wanted to be another Hammurabi. Now we come to the trial of Jesus. And here's some background that I'm going to try to read slowly uh, regarding the trial of Jesus. In ancient Assyro-Babylonia, courts resorted to divine legal proof to find a person's guilt or innocence, one of which was the judicial oath sworn at the temple before deity. The court might state to the guilty one, you claim not to have done such and such, to which the party on trial would swear to the God, I have not done such and such. The courts regarded this oath of supreme importance in deciding cases because they believed the gods ensured it thus making it conclusive of guilt or innocence, because those swearing would not likely perjure themselves before the God. In the Neo-Assyrian and Neo-Babylonian periods, first millennium BC, the use of such oaths began to wane because of a preference for rational evidence, primarily through witnesses. It also was not always viewed as dispositive, that is capable of settling guilt or innocence and unlike earlier periods, could not be contradicted in court processes. This change came about especially encouraged by priests in order to gain more control over the judicial process. That is, the priests did not trust deity to side with them. 
This same shift is demonstrated in the Hebrew Bible with Exodus utilizing the judicial oath as standard practice, while Deuteronomy prefers a more forensic witness-based oath. Now we come to the trial itself with Caiaphas and Jesus. At Jesus' trial, many false witnesses failed to achieve a shut case against Jesus' innocence. Finally, two men claimed that Jesus said he was able to destroy God's temple and build it in three days. Caiaphas tries to get Jesus to respond, but Jesus remains silent. Realizing how flimsy the case is from a forensic viewpoint and desperate to procure eyewitness testimonies, Caiaphas chooses the judicial oath as a way out. He says, I put you under oath before the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus replied, You, emphatic, said so. However, I tell you in the future, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. So let's do an analysis of the trial. It is clear that Caiaphas hopes to secure Jesus' condemnation by forensic, not cultic or divine means. It would not serve his interest to use the judicial earth, usual, judicial oath to the divine verdict since it could well deprive him and the Sanhedrin of their ability to condemn Jesus should the divine judgment be acquittal. It would also prolong the court's decision. Caiaphas used the judicial oath for only one purpose. If he could get Jesus to speak and state clearly that he was the Messiah, he could secure his condemnation with the Sanhedrin because the latter would serve as eyewitnesses to his testimony. But he does not state the judicial oath the usual way. Instead of saying, you claim to be the Messiah, Caiaphas says, I adjure you by the living God so that you may tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. By using the word if, Caiaphas not only prevents himself from possible blasphemy, but also puts Jesus in a situation where he will more likely indict himself by asserting the truth. In his response, Jesus does not swear. His words, you said, while stating his admission to being the Messiah and God's son, show a disregard for Caiaphas's if. The you is emphatic, suggesting Caiaphas's admission buried in his adjuration. Here Jesus supports his own injunctions not to swear any oath, but simply say yes or no. Anything else comes from evil. Thus, in Matthew 5, 33 to 37, just as he does in the next few lines with Hammurabi's Talionic Law, Jesus rejects all oath-taking, and oath-taking is a very Assyro-Babylonian convention, including the judicial oath. In his stating what Caiaphas will see someday, Jesus carefully avoids the term Messiah and the Son of God, using the term Son of Man. The term power was a popular term for God used to avoid saying the name Yahweh. Uh, and the reason they avoided saying the name Yahweh is they didn't want to be guilty of breaking the third commandment. Jesus is, of course, referring to himself. The Caiaphas cannot prove it from his words. So now we come to the verdict. Um, and by the way, 
The verdict is a very key element in Neo-Babylonian legal court cases. Uh, before the Neo-Babylonian period, and maybe I'm jumping ahead of myself, let me check. No, I, this is something I failed to put down. Uh, in the Neo-Babylonian period, the verdict became the important, the verdict became important, the important role of the law in court. That is, the goal of the court was to state the verdict. Before the Neo-Babylonian period, the role of the court was to act as advisory to those who were bringing their cases to try to bring about reconciliation between them. Uh, they, they were served more as counselors than they did as judges. Uh, so the idea of establishing a verdict is very Neo-Babylonian, and therefore that's the time period of the exile. So you can imagine that Judaism would be influenced by that. So now we come to the verdict. Jesus has broken no biblical law. He has cited Daniel 7, 13, and 14, but has not directly stated that he is the Son of Man. In doing so, Jesus does not deny this truth. Rather, he allows the evidence of his deeds to be his defense. He will not cooperate with a forensic basis of his trial. Caiaphas exclaims, He has blasphemed. Why do we need witnesses? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your verdict? Here, Caiaphas shows his preference for forensic rather than cultic evidence. And now that I've explained this, this will make sense. He also reflects the Neo-Babylonian focus on the verdict as the chief goal of a trial. Through opposing traditions colored by Babylonian ideologies and conventions, through the forensic procedures of the, Neo of the Babylonian court, or the, I should say the Babylonian-like Sanhedrin, and through Jesus' unwillingness to save himself by forensic means, the religious authorities condemn Jesus to a penal substitutionary death. Now we come to conclusions. And I would like to start with questions, and then I'll stop share. What was Babylon to John in the book of Revelation? What has Babylon meant traditionally to us as Adventists? In a broader sense, given all we know now, what might Babylon represent today? Is it a church or churches? Is it an ideology or theology? And what does it mean for Babylon to fall? How would we know when Babylon has fallen? What does it mean today to come out of Babylon? And who are my people of Revelation 18, 14? I will now stop share. So are you looking for responses now? Yes, I'm looking for discussion. <laughs> uh, well, the floor is open. We've lost Mark. <laughs> uh, <laughs> okay. Um, maybe I'll pause his video. How's that? Mark, we're back. Um, so, Gene, in the in the verdict, um, uh, there's a couple questions forming. Before I get back to the questions you laid out for us. Um, Go over the verdict again. Well, okay, two things before I forget. So one is, 
trying to understand the verdict Babylonian style versus what God is doing. Okay. For us. The other is um, Caiaphas condemned Jesus as he had said to a penal substitution that he would die for all of us. How is our language different as we talk about the substitution of Christ for the consequences of rebellion? Okay, those are two very different questions. Let me start with the first one. Um, For the first one, early Babylonian law was not like our our legal system in, in America. It was, our legal system is adversarial. Babylonian law was evidence-based. Um, and the role of the court was to try to adjudicate between two parties who were estranged from each other and were battling their case out in the courts. So they, the, the judges, they didn't have lawyers in those days. Uh, the judges acted more as an advisory council trying to bring about reconciliation. The goal was not so much a verdict. There might be a verdict, there might be a verdict necessary, but uh, that was not their goal. In the Neo-Babylonian period, the role of the judges was to form a verdict. So you hand down the verdict and the sentence, um, and that's pretty much it. You don't advise and try to reconcile the parties. So, um, even when we say, I guess sort of Jesus meeting us where we are when he came, the verdict we get, if you will, is innocent. I judge no one. Those I judge mm-hmm. are my children. <laughs> He's not, he's not into a verdict. This is the verdict that light comes into the world. You could actually translate it that way. This is the verdict that light comes into the world, and men reject the light. They, they bring the verdict on themselves. And the evidence is there right. that no reconciliation is possible. Right. Okay. Right. So now on to... You, I didn't answer your second question, though. And I, 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 would you restate that question, please? Oh, wow. Okay. So now we're, we're back to the penal substitution of Caiaphas. Right. And what is our difference in our language? Today, as we describe it, because we use almost the same language. Mm-hmm. And... You know, there's all these atonement theories, and penal substitution is labeled as one of them, as opposed to just simply Christ our substitute, right? We, we attach other things to it. Well, honestly, the way most people use penal substitution, it's very Babylonian. I sometimes read uh, stuff on it, and I'll say, boy, that sounds really Babylonian. Um, so... I don't think there's a great deal of difference. Um, The way I use it is more the way Dan Smith uses it. He uses the term revelatory substitution. And that's how I use it. There is, if if you want to use 
the terminology, you can use the terminology for Jesus' death if you understand that penal means he suffers the consequences of sin rather than God is killing his son. I'm, I'm thinking, so if, what if the modification is, well, God, not God killing his son. Right. Uh, hmm. But he... But what Jesus does is reveal the truth about the nature and consequences of sin by taking sin on himself. And by doing that, he condemns sin in the flesh. And, and by the way, the Septuagint re rendering of Isaiah 53 definitely portrays that very way. It, it's definitely revelatory substitution. In fact, substitution is hardly found in the Septuagint version. Thank you. Other questions? I know I've, uh, it, there was, it was dense. I'm still thinking there was a few, um, you know, you may just have to have a few meetings sometime. <laughs> so, you know, I got one question. Uh, it seems like two times in his trial, I think once with Pilate, once with Caiaphas, at least two times, Jesus, when they ask him a question, he turns around and says, you said so. Mm-hmm. And you had a good explanation there for Caiaphas. And I'm a little curious as to why he put that on Pilate. Is it possible that he was trying to get them to think and take responsibility? I think he's saying it to say, Pilate, you see me as a king, but I'm not a king. I would never call myself a king. Uh, let me explain something I just recently read part of an article that I intend to finish, but I've been had a very, very busy quarter. And that is that according to this Jewish author, the Jews in, well, in the whole Testament would never refer to God as King. They referred to him as the God of the covenant and covenant meant a relationship of trust. So they were very reluctant in the Old Testament to refer to God as king. And yet you end up in Revelation, he's called king of kings. Right. He's called king of kings because he's speaking Babylonian to the Babylonians. The only antecedent for that in the Old Testament is Daniel calling Nebuchadnezzar king of kings. So he's replacing Nebuchadnezzar. Yeah. Hmm. But he's... That's I used to think that maybe... Maybe the king of kings, king of kings is like, I'm the king who redefines what a king is. Well, that's essentially what it turns out to be. But it, he's speaking Babylonian. That's one of the most Babylonian statements in Revelation. Hmm. And Lord of Lords, the same thing, right? Mm -hmm. Right. Any others? So, Mark, so the whole... Um, sovereignty of God notion in particularly in evangelical circles today is is a very um, is a very Babylonian way of looking at 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 God absolutely absolutely and it, it it permeates everything that they do the way they want to recast Jesus as as a I mean, what is happening in American circles, in evangelical, especially 
your right-wing evangelical circles is parallel to what happened in Germany when they recast Jesus as an Aryan hero, superhero, who is going to conquer the world. So, so it, it makes me think of, oh, I can't remember the, I think it's in Revelation where it says, you've asked for this, and so this is what I've given you. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So are we still looking for the wrong second coming? Are, are we looking for the King of Kings and Lord of Lords that's Supreme <laughs> Almighty? I think we're going to have that coming. Uh, yeah. When Satan mas masquerades as Christ. Ah, I see. But with the true Jesus still be coming in, we're given clouds of glory and other illustrations, but his character is no different. He's still no. the same. That's right. He doesn't come to rule. So I can't help but think that um, however God shows up at the end, one's going to see what one expects. So even when God, the true God comes in glory, if you're expecting, if you're expecting this other thing, it's, it's, it's going to look like that to you. Mm -hmm. I think so. I think so. That's why the wicked at the end of the millennium, when they bow and say, just and true are your ways, O thou king of saints. Look at their wording. They don't say, loving and merciful you are. <laughs> you know, they don't have that picture of God. So their knees bow, their tongues confess the truth of how they understand God. Yeah. I once told somebody, it kind of, kind of uh, scandalized them, but I said, I think that in the end, God gives everybody what they want. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that's, that's the first biblical definition of divine anger. Uh, in Genesis, God is never angry once. So the first canonical reference to divine anger is when God has this very long debate with Moses about whether he should go to Egypt. Moses finally runs out of arguments, and he says, Oh, Lord, please send someone else. And then it says the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he says, All right, I'll give you what you want. Aaron's coming. How can I give you up? How can I let you go? Yeah, I'll give you what you want. The king. Uh... <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so this this uh, gives us an interesting context for the Israelites asking God for a king. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. They were encountering his wrath. <laughs> yes. So, so the, the Old Testament really never talks about God this way, and yet you see the Israelites going toward that all on their own. Mm -hmm. and, and can we talk, well, maybe that answers the question. Can we talk about how they switched over from this, uh, the view of God that he's been, he tried to give them in the Old Testament to the Babylonian God? Did they, did they latch onto the Babylonian God because that matched what they were already doing, despite what God had tried to portray himself as in the Old Testament? 
Or how, um, how did that switch it's, it's over? A long, it's a long scenario. There's an intermediary God in there that they latch onto who is a parallel to Marduk. And that is Baal, or we usually pronounce Baal, but actually the better pronunciation is Baal. Baal is a kingly deity. He wants supremacy over all the gods, just like Marduk does. Um, and he has to slay Yom, the sea, in order to gain it. Uh, when he comes to deal with death, Moat, he loses. And he, he's this dying and rising God. The reason they latch on to him is because, I think, one of the reasons... One of the reasons is fertility. They saw these gods as fertility gods, and they didn't think Yahweh was a very good utility, uh, fertility god. But I think the key reason that they latched onto these other gods is because Yahweh was too meek and mild. And yet when he talks to him at Sinai, he seems to... <laughs> pick up that language and yeah. and uh, and speak their language when he's at Sinai. He does. It still in, wasn't enough. In terms, in, in terms of his power, but his words itself, I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That's a manifesto of freedom. You know, and it doesn't quite match his, his vocal <laughs> expression, you know, the, the, the strength of his voice. It's sort of like shouting, I love you. <laughs> you <know? laughs> to, to the Israelites, it sends a somewhat of a mixed message. It's a powerful voice, but soft words. Yeah. So uh, I'm still trying to get my head around. Did they have, I mean, before the exile, in contrast to the exile, they were already misunderstanding God for coming out of Egypt. They had a, a an Egyptian understanding of deity. Um, God gives them beauty in the law and the covenant. He gives them uh, protection and compassion, but they don't recognize it as some things because. Well, so look at the golden calf incident. They need a bull calf to lead them out of Egypt because Moses has gone and left. Now the fire is still burning on Mount Sinai. God's presence is still there, but, but they don't have his double. And, and let me talk a little bit about idolatry because this might help a bit. Idols or statues were doubles of the thing they represented. It's a substitutionary thing. Um, so they substituted for what they represented. And if you had your, your idol of a, de of a deity and, and you, you had done all the right ceremonies to get the deity to come and, and reside in that idol, you then had the deity and you had him under your control. It was a means of control. It, Yahweh can't be controlled. He can't be manipulated. He can't be appeased. He can't be, he can't be made to change his mind. Yahweh is who he is. Take me the way I am, <laughs> in other words. That has fascinating implications. 
I never thought of that. But if Jesus came claiming to be God's double, then they felt that they needed to get him under their control. Absolutely. So they viewed Jesus as an idol that they could manipulate and control God. Because that's how they manipulated and controlled God was through their rules. The rules came as a substitute for idol worship. So they were trying to force God's double to submit to their double, mm -hmm. which was rules. Mm -hmm. And he refused. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was the first living idol they'd ever seen anyway, which really complicates things. So if we go back, in a sense, I, I'm thinking out loud here. So <laughs> Jesus is the the most genuine image bearer of God. I mean, he is God. There is, in a sense, we could see him as a double, but in the reality, he's equal. Well, not, he's, he's not a double because he's not a substitute. Right. But, um, but it's possible the Jews could see him that way. I would, yes. But now we're called to be image bearers, reflectors, mm -hmm. not idols, um, no, not substitutes. But we're not God. That's the difference. Okay. And no one should look to me as their God uh, intercessor, intermediary. Much like Moses. I, do you see there, there's Moses, we need a go-between, don't let God speak to us directly. Mm -hmm. So in a sense, he became their image bearer, or the image bearer. You know, he came down from the mountain. He was veiled. Right. And that that never ended because when the, when he became the lawgiver vis-a-vis -vis Hammurabi, he became their last court of appeal. And they used Moses. You see, when Jesus came, they used Moses against Jesus. All they could. That's why that Jesus promoted Moses. <laughs> Well, at that point, they were looking for verdict as opposed to reconciliation. Right. I'm starting to, it's starting to make some sense. So I, I'm trying to relate this to um, something. Well, I, I guess I thought I understood it. If you look in the prophets, particularly Isaiah and Jeremiah, you see these, these two voices. One of them is a very fierce voice. Mm -hmm. how God's going to whip up on all their enemies and, and on them. And then at the same time, you it, they, then, then the prophet will switch into this other voice where he says, oh, but I love you and I want to bring you back. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it sounds like he's, at some places, he's using the Babylonian view of God and, and then kind of contrasting it with, with the kind of God that, that um, he wants them to see him as. And I, I always thought of that, this as, as him speaking their language so they could understand them. Mm -hmm. I guess maybe that's still the case. Um, well, the prophets who are the most angry are Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Jeremiah is prophesying during the Neo-Babylonian period when Nebuchadnezzar has taken Jew the Jews captive. Ezekiel is in Babylon. 
Oh, okay. That makes a lot of sense. So they're, they are directly speaking that language mm-hmm. because they're in that environment. I hadn't really thought of that, but that's right. So I, Isaiah would have been before, just before that, right? And Isaiah, Isaiah is during the Neo-Assyrian period, which is pretty similar to Babylon. Uh, and in that period, gods are angry. So he's speaking Assyrian, you might say. Was there ever a time when, I mean, Israel basically never got this, did they? I guess if they had, we wouldn't be here. No, they never got it. Well, I, <laughs> we still would have been grafted in as Gentiles, wouldn't we? Even if they had gotten it, they would have welcomed right. us. Right. But, you know, we, we still haven't gotten it, have we? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We are very much the modern Israel. The conviction. That's really the truth. I mean, you know, if, if we're to show the the world a good image of God, one that would not crucify them if he came again, then how can we do that believing that Babylonian, look at our, the way our church does, does theology, or the way any Christian church does theology. Yeah. We crucify him again. So, in, in, go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say. I, so, I mean, this this fits hand in glove with with the whole message that I think Adventists have been given, and yet I know good and well that that pastors who are good, very good friends of mine they would be horrified. They would be horrified. If, if I, in so many words, told them, you, you realize you're preaching the Babylonian God, right? <laughs> how on earth do we, how do we, how do we gently get across to, to, to our, our friends and neighbors, uh, even in the Adventist church, something that God, God couldn't get across to the Israelites or even the early Christian church very well. Actually, that's, that's another question I would like to ask is, did the early Christian church, how did they fit into this? What was their view vis-a-vis the, the Babylonian God? That is something I'm going to have to research more. In the early centuries, their, the view of the early church was closer to Jesus. Uh, you have Origen who actually taught a form of the Great Controversy. Um, you have the ransom theory where uh, Jesus died to, to conquer the devil. But as once Constantine took over, things change. And what is interesting is Eusebius, who is in the shadow, I, I, I should look up when his date actually is. I don't know if anybody has access to a phone, iPhone that can they could look that up. Uh, when did Eusebius live? That's E U S E B I E I U S. Eusebius. Could you spell that again? E U S E B I U S. He died May of 339 AD. Okay, now look up Constantine. He'd be Constantine the Great. Mm-hmm. 
um, he became sole ruler, 324. Okay, so he overlaps with Eusebius. I was thinking they were contemporaries. Um, Eusebius actually has Babylonian works that we would only know about from him. So Babylonian influence influenced the West, influenced the Greco-Roman Empire. Uh, some of the Greek and Roman gods are parallels to Babylonian gods. Um, the idea of appeasement is very Greek, uh, whereas it's not so much, it's not at all Egypt. Egypt doesn't believe in angry gods. So... Uh, you have this widespread influence, and once you have the Christians coming into power through Constantine, everything shifts theologically. And then they, re they bring in the whole pagan viewpoint, which is, has its roots in Babylon. I need to, ra to research this more to map it out in detail, but uh, that's been my understanding from the little bit of research I've done. Then do we need greater understanding, or is the answer? What is the answer? How how can we, how can this how can good achieve its ultimate purpose? It seems like um, trying to educate hasn't worked very well. <laughs> we need force, fear, and intimidation. <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell you, if we were to. We have been, we have tried to model Jesus, right? It's a soft touch that we have, we have de-emphasized his woes on the Pharisees. But if we were to come through with this, a clear, a clear note, it would raise the hackles and that would bring people mm -hmm. to go, wait a minute, we've got to look at this. Right now the church is pretty much asleep. Like legal law. euthanasia <laughs> oh. or legal anesthesia I should say in order and we can legally put people no, uh, ourselves down but. so I'm trying to get my head around a, a several different things I think but in the Anglican tradition you have John Stott and you have N.T. Wright mm-hmm and they speak very different language. Mm -hmm. um, I see that in many different places. I see it in the Catholic Church emerging. I see it in uh, the Adventist Church. Uh, I'm sure it happens other places. Uh, it's in the Evangelical Church. Let's face it, you have, you have Greg Boyd and you have, uh, what's his name, Piper? <laughs> John Piper? Oh, that's your wrong thing. Yeah. Um, so, how? What? A, what? A, how does the Eastern Church factor into this? I didn't even realize this till a few years ago. Is the whole Eastern version of Christianity does not believe in the appeasement model, does not believe in penal substitution. They have a completely different picture of God, and it's very, very pervasive. I mean, they did not get influenced by Constantine. They split off. Right. And that's I mean, do they, do they factor into the salvation of repairing God's image? 
possibly on the on the positive note, maybe. Um, I do think they adopted a little bit of a power model in the way the the their bishops dress and carry themselves. So I think they could be converted from that. If you have a church, then truly the remnant. Well, my, the questions I read... Well, I, I, I certainly don't think we're the only ones that are thinking this way. Somebody mentioned Dr. Greg Boyd. He's certainly got a piece of it. I've been listening to um, uh, actually a, a Catholic Franciscan, and, and it turns out that the Franciscans don't really believe in substitutionary atonement either. So there's a lot of pieces for this all over the place. Traditional Catholic theology believed that Jesus appeased the Father's wrath. Um, but you have Catholic voices that will deviate from that. I'd like to tackle the last questions I asked. Okay. Do you want me to share them again? What was Babylon to John in the book of Revelation? Um, can you still talk to me? Yeah. Okay. Um, what do, what do you think, having gone through this? What the, was Babylon to John? What did it represent? Yeah, false, false God, false belief, false church, everything that is opposed to Jesus, to God. Yeah, but there's something specifically that he's talking about. Babylon, he's talking, Babylon. Is he talking about Judas, Jew, Jewish Jerusalem? Yes. And what they stood for. Yes. Babylon is the opposite of the New Jerusalem. Babylon is the Old Jerusalem. So what has Babylon meant traditionally to us as Adventists? Roman Catholic. You know, actually, if you go back far enough, the early Adventists believed that the Babylon and the daughters of Babylon were the fallen churches, the Protestant churches. Well, and ultimate, ultimately, isn't Babylon and the the beast and the image to the beast the incarnation or the the visible image of the adversary's way of doing things, which is exactly what Babylon, literal Babylon, was. I I personally think that Adventist Adventism could correct its theology if you're going to stick with Catholicism. Babylon isn't Catholicism because. In Adventist interpretation, the beast is Catholicism, and Babylon rides the beast. But to John, the beast was Rome. And old Jerusalem relied on Rome to crucify Jesus. So in a broader sense, given all you know now, what might Babylon represent today? Is it really a, an entity, or is it, could it be an ideology or theology? Well, I'm going to think out loud for a second. I, the idea that we would that the theology requires state, so reliance on a beast for enforcement mm -hmm. would seem to be representing Babylonian. Mm -hmm. Babylon falls because she fornicates with kings. So religion and and Political entities combine or unite. And, and this fits with, again, early Adventism believed that the fall of Babylon was the union of church and state. So Babylon, 
falls at the union of church and state? Fall, Babylon, the fall of Babylon is the union of church and state. Okay. Because she fornicates with kings. The fornication with kings represents a union between religion and the state. So I've answered the, the next question, but so um, what does it mean today to come out of Babylon and who are my people? See, I, I'm going to start with the last one. Adventists have said it's those uh, people outside the church that are the ones who are supposed to come out of Babylon, right? That's our general language. Right. But... It says, my people. Are we saying then that we're not his people? <laughs> We've excluded ourselves by our language. Uh, you know, so if there's the idea of relying on state power or, or the enforcement, force fear, intimidation, manipulation, control, guilt, change. All of these are the tools of Babylon. Mm -hmm. So coming out of Babylon is to take on, well, we're going to leave something, you have to go to something else. So are we going and clinging to Christ and his mm -hmm. method, his character, his spirit? Is our fullness of our identity wrapped up in him? Are we secure at rest in him? That would be coming out of Babylon and resting in Jesus. Yeah. To me, yeah, to me, it includes coming out of Babylon theologically. Getting rid of our Babylonian gods and their wrath and their appeasement and embracing the truth about God as revealed by Jesus. It seems to me that the hallmark of, of the adversary's government and way of running the universe is the use of power. And very specifically, the use of power to coerce obedience and coerce, um, you know, people's thinking. Mm -hmm. um, if so, so, and and that that immediately goes in with the the thing of, um, you know, the the Babylon rides the bee. So it's using the the state power and the, the combination of of church and state. If and maybe this isn't a, a proper application, but you know the the uh, the the parable of the of the ten virgins, all of them slept, mm -hmm. which which means to me that we have we have also fallen under this spell of thinking that power is really the way that that mm -hmm. things need to be done, and so we too need to hear this message that no, that's not the way it works. And that if you really want to be on God's side, because that's the adversary's way of, of, uh, of running the universe. And that's what he's trying to, that's what he's trying to reproduce here. And God is trying to reproduce the opposite of that, which is no um, self-sacrificing love is, is, is the way that, that we win. Yeah, absolutely. You know, when you talk about the separation of church and state or the fornication of church and state, I, it occurred to me that if we brought this down to a much more personal level, 
instead of calling it church, which is some denominational political organization, actually, we should be talking about conscience, shouldn't we? Mm-hmm. And then the state represents, I mean, all states, all governments rely on coercion, intimidation, and force. And so to keep those separate, we have to separate freedom of conscience from coercion of conscience. Isn't that what coming out of Babylon actually means on a personal level? For sure. For sure. Really, it should be the other way around. Get the Babylon out of us instead of us out of Babylon. Yeah. Because the very word beast has all the implications of intimidation, force, violence. That's why the word beast was used. And dragon is the epitome of that, which is the exact opposite of a violently slaughtered lamb that continues to live. Yeah. They could not control Jesus as, so the Jews had rules as their idols. Jesus came as the true, the real, the equal. They tried to make him an idol. When we now look at at our freedom in Christ, you know, there's words like, be careful in your freedom that you don't, you know, get enslaved to something else, and I can appreciate all of that, but I It seems to me that often when people recognize their freedom to have their personal journey with Christ, everyone around them wants to warn them about the dangers of freedom. Mm -hmm. And it seems like we're trying to, again, make idolatry of rules. Mm -hmm. It's that determination to control. We can't control the we can't control the Holy Spirit. We're terrified that He might take over because we can't control Him. So rejoice in their freedom. Encourage them in their freedom to keep clinging to God. You know, I think I think you've hit something. Um, there's a lot of discouraged Christians, and I'm going to say Adventists as well who, uh, because of the critics in the church who love to judge, have basically almost given up. And it's, it, it would be really great to be able to somehow reach out to them in a in different avenue than through the church and attempt to uh, encourage them uh, to continue that journey they started. You were just going to Sabbath school today, Romans 7, 1 through 6. Mm-hmm. And, and there's so much more from Paul and Jesus about freedom. And mm-hmm. uh, I just think how much I need to think through some of the, the mm-hmm. things I've said to people. And um, while I do think some of the woes I have sometimes given are appropriate, I want to make sure I'm not trying to exert control. <laughs> Well, I think I think the love way is is to do it for your sake because we care about you, but leave it to you at the same time to decide where you're going to take what you, what you're going to do with what I've said. 
it's something I have to do in the classroom with my students. I have to ensure that when I when there's a difference of opinion in the class, that when I weigh in on the topic, that what I have said is my opinion, and they are free to decide whether or not to accept it. And my students feel pretty free because <laughs> they often disagree with me. <laughs> and isn't that the example of the prophets of the Old Testament? That they they put it out there, but then they left everybody free to to decide what choose you this day whom you will serve. Mm -hmm. Yeah, did we answer all the questions? I thought there were a few more on that list. Um, there's actually a little bit more uh, on, on the slides. I don't think, I think we answered all the questions. Did you oh, see anything? Okay, let me go to the next slide. Okay, this is where I actually take Babylon, Judaism, and Western thought. And I think you can read that for yourselves. It's pretty much what I've said. Um, and then I talk about Babylon and Old Jerusalem. And I point out one thing I haven't said, that the call for John was given to my people, a term that biblically applies to the Jewish people, telling them to come out of the Babylonian influences they had retained. And then I bring up again the ancient models for relationships. It's, it, to me, coming out of Babylon, it means coming out of the air we breathe. <laughs> So I, I like the idea that me get the Babylonian out of us. It, th this is also pervasive. Here's what I would like to say. When Babylon falls, the ancient Near Eastern imagery behind the fall of Babylon is the fall of a powerful city to enemy forces. Biblically, it parallels the fall of Jerusalem to Nebuchadnezzar, but actually serves to foretell the future fall of Jerusalem. To Rome in AD 70. And I think that's what Revelation is talking about, is that fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. Theologically, the fall of individuals or groups occurs when Babylonian principles reach their full fruition in force and violence. You think about the flood, the earth was filled with violence, uh, and so you have the flood. Uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, angels try to gang rape. I'm sorry, the people of the city try to gang rape the angels. The king of Babylon falls because of, of he wouldn't let his prisoners go home. He forced them to stay. Uh, the king of Tyre falls because he becomes violent and he sins. You think of the rejection of Jeremiah. Israel falls, in a sense, uh, before the Babylonian exile because of, of their rejection of Jeremiah. And then you have Je Jesus' crucifixion, which is the ultimate rejection. So I would like to suggest that the call of come, to come out of Babylon means to come out of the Babylonian inventions that portray God as one who is arbitrary, who values us as economic objects, who made us his slaves. Like an earthly king ruling over others, controlling them and serving regardless, uh, regardless of how sinful is the human image of divinity. Like a judge sending divine verdicts down to us as signs, punishing us frequently for our sins and who can be legally satisfied by penal substitution. And it, we don't just come out of something, we return to the creator and his creation, whose spiritual and moral laws operate by intrinsic cause and effect, 
thus describe the things the way things work. Jesus died to demonstrate this. Who as the father of all humanity seeks to nurture an, an intimate nurture an intimate relationship of love and trust. Jesus died to win us back to trust. And to one who gave us his Sabbath to provide non-hierarchical, non-economic, and natural relationships of freedom and equality. And that is it. Wow. <laughs> I was just thinking the same thing. I think you saved the best for last. <laughs> and all we have to do is look around us in the world and... Um, you know, this day are these words fulfilled in your ears. It seems to be happening all around us right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I just, I have to believe that God is bigger than the Seventh-day Adventist Church. That he is calling a people out everywhere. And one of the, one of the defining lines of, you might say, separation is whether or not you support violence. So I think of the, the uh, Muslims who reject violence. I think of, of um, the evangelicals who reject a nonviolent atonement. Who reject a nonviolent or who are nonviolent? Who reject a nonviolent atonement. Well, you don't have to go to the evangelicals, is it? church leader right now who is basically literally explicitly said in one of his writings that if God doesn't extract vengeance he couldn't worship that uh, worship that kind of a God um, oh, and who is this <laughs> are you talking Clifford, about Clifford Goldstein oh, Clifford. In, in one of his books uh, explicitly says that if God does not extract retribution for the not from the Nazis uh, that he couldn't worship such a God. You know, um, that is one of the key reasons why our views haven't made much of a dent in the Adventist church. There's a lot of people who agree with him. There's well, it, so in, in that respect, the Adventist church is not much different than everyone around them. Uh, we are Babylon just as much as everybody else in that we, we, um, uh, as a church organization, worship the same kind of God that the evangelicals do, and that uh, that that embodies the the Babylonian God. We're we're right there with them. We just have the Sabbath and vegetarianism to go with it. A, a form of the Sabbath, I'm going to say. No. We really had the Sabbath, right? <laughs> well, and and. You know, so I, I, there's so many different variations. There's the idea that if God, if so-and-so, if God keeps so-and-so out of heaven, I don't want to be there. There's, there's an idea that, that God is the gatekeeper rather than honoring our the choices duty. we make. Right. And, and so we have these selfies in a variety of different ways, whether mm -hmm. it's, retribution or or that he's the gatekeeper keeping some people out and opening it for others um, and, and I've had to move to inclusive language whether I can explain well what Jesus did on the cross what I do know is he reveals how inclusive God is 
for me, rejecting absolutely no one, but honoring the fact that people opt out or don't want to be there. So I, I, you know, I don't know the right language to use sometimes. In my my whole view of, I was raised in Adventist, went to all the schools, and I always had this picture of of being lost as the default, you know. So if you were God, cast everybody out, and if you wanted back in, well, there was some stuff you had to do. And I now understand how Babylonian that is in terms of what we've been talking about today. And that the opposite is, is the truth, that every day God puts me back in the circle of his love. And if I want out, I've got to fight my way out. Now, unfortunately, we're very good at doing that. But, but it's a whole different way of looking about at God and his relationship with me and what he wants from me. Um, that he's going to put me back in his circle of love every day for the rest of my life until, until I just... I either give into it and say, okay, I, I like this place, and I, I hope that's on the, the path I'm on. Or I finally say, this is terrible. Let me out of this. Just leave me alone. And that, that's very different than, than, than what I was taught. At least it's, 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 I don't know if it's different from what I was taught. It's different from what I learned. And I, I, I just wish I knew how to talk to people to say, you don't have to see it that way. I mean, you talked earlier about people who have kind of given up. I've given up on the church. I'll, I'll have to tell you, I simply don't think uh, I don't think the church is is going to ever receive that, and that if uh, if this comes along, it's going to have to be outside of any organization, very much the way the early the early Christian church was, uh, the early Adventist church for that matter. Um, and I think I've told some of you at this various points, I would like to write this whole great controversy uh, view of God and what he's trying to do in a way that people who have zero religion at all and who would never darken the door of a church could, could get and say, oh, wow, yeah, that, that kind of makes sense. Of course, it's a daunting task, and I don't know how to, how to go about it either, but I think that that's what we've got to do. We've got to find a way to present to people who do not resonate with what's going on in, in their church or any church to say there's another way of relating to the larger reality, a higher power, whatever they want to talk about. Um, and, 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 and the, the understanding of what God's trying to do in the resolution of evil and in church, the earth's history and in the Bible is 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 something that I think would resonate with a lot of people if you could get past all the all the the, the baggage language barriers. I the the idea comes to me with what Paul said. You know, is there any advantage to being a Jew? Which to him in his day was the same like we would think of Adventist. And then he says, absolutely. You know, they were given the privilege of having all this information, but they twisted it and distorted it and suppressed it. And we've seen the same thing happen again, but I don't think it's beyond God to allow the false views to become so obnoxious 
that they self-destruct no, and, and that we reject them because they become so obnoxious. I, I think the way that we're, one of the ways in which that's going to happen is possibly when we rock the boat. And I don't mean to get vigilante about it or, or uh, uh, dogmatic in any way, but I think that what we know needs to be disseminated in some way. The church has never grown in times of where nobody was opposed. When everything is quiet, it's, it's, we're in stagnation because those who are in control are in control and no one has rocked their boat enough. But I don't think that's something we can generate ourselves. I think we have to make ourselves available to the Holy Spirit to lead in that direction. So Elijah rocked the boat. John the Baptist rocked the boat. They were, they were led by God to do what they did. And, and that's, right. that's the thing I want to make sure is that I'm being led by God. Right. Otherwise, we have the wrong spirit. Exactly. And you end up being a false prophet because you might be saying the right words with the wrong attitude and you're still misrepresenting God. Yeah, it's time for Amos and Hosea to show up again. May I not be Hosea? But marrying a prostitute? Yeah. Anyway, but um, I guess trying to, maybe learning to ask questions. You know, when I think back to Graham Maxwell, and his personal, you know, it's one thing to sit in class and, and take notes. Another thing when you just bump into him at the grocery store or something else, and, or you approach me and you tell him about some harebrained idea that you have about the atonement and something else, and he basically says, hey, wow, interesting, keep reading, you know. Um, <laughs> and he's encouraging and freeing for you to pursue that journey. Um, even if he disagrees with you, he doesn't even say anything like that. Um, but at least as I remember, uh, but the constancy of keep exploring what you know, in essence, what you know today is not final. Mm -hmm. There's more to learn. And I think it's too easy for me sometimes to come and say, oh, I have this new discovery. This is truth. And it's truth for me today in my journey with God. So I'm coming out of Babylon. Maybe I won't be fully out the door until the last breath or until the first breath uh, later. <laughs> I've often said that uh, I would never leave the Adventist church. They'll have to kick me out. But... Um, on the other hand, I have tried to be politic and not not ruffle too many feathers. Um, honestly, maybe it's time to stop thinking that way. It's time to it's time to say what needs to be said, particularly for somebody like me whose living does not depend on the Adventist Church. <laughs> Are you inferring something about me and about Bill? <laughs> Oh, well, no, I didn't mean that exactly, but uh, <laughs> it was 
I could actually, not. Thinking, thinking of, a, of, a, of an email group I was in for many, many years. So, I mean, a lot of the people there had really good good understanding, but they they had difficulty saying anything about it because as soon as they, they, they put their hand up, uh, they were going to be looking for a new job. Well, that certainly doesn't apply to me. And I think anything that we need to say, we have to remember, if we're not in Babylon, it's not about guilt, shame, intimidation, force, fear, and any about it. It's love. The woes, you know, when Jesus was saying the Matthew 23 woes, he wasn't cursing them. It was love for correction or woe for, I mean, to me, as I, as I have come to see him, he has to inject love and compassion for the individual, even if it's not for the author. One of the things that impressed me the most when I read Bruce Marciano's book, the one who played Jesus in the Matthew videos, and, and then I met him in person as well, which super impressed me, was, you know, that very scene, which was probably his most um, moving experience, even himself that he described, was the woes. And in fact, what he described in the book was that when, when, he, when they filmed that scene, he didn't remember a single thing through the entire filming. It's like, it was like he was taken over and he completely blanked out through that entire filming. And the next thing he knew, he was in a hump off on the side and his friends were around him saying, what happened? And he had no idea what happened. What, was that the so, one... Is that the one who did such a magnificent job of portraying Jesus with tears in his voice? And yes, yes, that's exactly what it was. I mean, he, it is an amazing. He was full of emotion life. and compassion and and grief, and it, yeah. and it took over him it's so, so real. he didn't even know he had done it. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. And that's so. This comes brings me back, you know, thinking about when we are directing our speech to person or people group that we're addressing, we've got to have that love in our hearts for the, the speaker. Absolutely. If we're speaking the truth as we have experienced it and have it revealed to us by God, then we don't have any apologies to make. We're not condemning anyone. We're, we're speaking the truth that we're experiencing. Mm -hmm. uh, that we come out angry either. Um, but sometimes, you know, the temple is filled with money changers. <laughs> and yet, the children were not afraid of Jesus. Even immediately after. Right? I mean, so there's something, if I have the story down right, there's something in chasing the money changers out and the, whatever, the people abusing the temple that scares them but doesn't scare the children. I want to have that in my life, and the only source of that is God. <laughs> that's why I think, that's why Jesus said to the disciples, you're going to have to wait in Jerusalem until the power of the Holy Spirit comes. Because otherwise, we're going to toot our own horn. Which might be significant for us, because instead of bailing out of the church, Jesus is saying, stay until you get the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. then you will have the right 
attitude while having the power to speak with boldness, but not with harshness. Yeah. So we're waiting. I think this is Mark where you ask how long do we have to wait. What was that? Oh, this. I think this is where you you ask how long do we have to wait? How much more suffering do we have to endure? That's what I hear more sometimes when you discuss. The just shall live by faith, or those who those who trust me are willing to wait. Mm-hmm. As I've heard that it, it, it could be translated. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's was Habakkuk's question: is yes. what on, what are you waiting for? Well, I understand that question. Mm-hmm. I think we're actually headed for it. It may be sooner than we think. I will have to admit that several, actually it's been a number of years ago now, I, I had kind of said, you know, I don't really believe in Adventist eschatology anymore. I just don't think it's going to turn out that way. Well, I've had to eat every last one of those words because <laughs> it seems to be shaping up almost exactly the way the way Adventist eschatology uh, laid it out. And, and, mm-hmm. uh, quite amazing, actually. Um, it is. On the other hand, I don't think we've got God over a barrel. And a lot of people say, well, this is great. You know, he's got to come now. Um, you know, I, I, I think he intended to come when the early Christians um, were, were we're about this close to to uh, to getting it, and uh, I think we need to take this really seriously and and make sure that that we do everything we can to to um, understand it and to and to get the word out. Because yeah. well, if if God doesn't come on, if doesn't God doesn't come on this round, the the next cycle will make the dark ages look like a Sunday picnic. That's right. What did we get wrong in 1888 with Righteous by Trust? And, you know, Jones and Wagner and Ellen's, you know, what brought me, what, what brought Ellen back to me was her work with Jones, Wagner, and church leaders. Um, and, and still somehow we seem to take the fact of Trust me, and you're right. Or yeah. watch up. You know, there's there's real evidence that God was getting ready to come back then. Uh, there were Sunday laws passed. Adventists were being put in prison, in the, in America for keep for not keeping Sunday. There were signs in the heavens that were abnormal. There were just all kinds of things that indicated that the time was right and we let him down and now it seems to me that we have a much larger for god that we god has a much larger worldwide audience than the nation seems to have to speak yes that there are people listening to the spirit and responding to him being drawn to him that are non-violent uh, willing, uh, or perhaps will be ready to step up and mm-hmm. emerge into something new or something true. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, that's why I think that he's moved, he's moved and shifted on his own, in a sense, to reach the world. And he's just looking for whoever he could. I mean, if you look at the Laodicean message, it says very clearly, I'm about to spew you out of my mouth. 
meaning you're no longer my witnesses. And it ends with, look, I'm standing at the door, and he's outside the church, knocking at the door. He says, if any one, any individual hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. And I think that that's where God has gone. He's moving to individuals, anyone he can find who's willing to hear the truth about him and speak it. The greater number are in the other fellowships, as he quite said. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I, I'm involved with a couple of groups, uh, uh, a group of the Quakers right uh, down the hill from me here um, are very much um, the nonviolence and, you know, uh, mm -hmm. The the uh, Franciscan the Richard Rohr and his his, his group I, they're very much on board. There's there's place there's people all over the place that are thinking along these lines and are just missing the piece that we have. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So is the piece we have the Church of God and cosmic conflict? How? I sometimes take some of what I know for granted, and I don't know always remember what is more unique. The kind of God, the kind of God that comes out of our understanding of is dealing with the great controversy. So it's not the great controversy itself; it's the kind of God that it reveals. That's the missing piece. Mm -hmm. No, okay, I, I'm with you. I just needed to make sure that I'm not just going, yeah. Yeah, well, don't you know it's the Sabbath and the, and the identification of the little horn? That's the missing piece. If they just knew that, everything would be well, right? And it's, well, it goes back to our, our thing here. All those, was it 400 rules around the Sabbath itself or something? Mm-hmm. And, and the idea that the Sabbath was really about freedom and relationship? Mm-hmm. We're not too different today when we think about what we can and cannot do on Sabbath, rather than savoring relationships. Well, right down the hill from Mark, I used to worry. I, I lived at Laurelwood. I used to worry about I, I, about what I shouldn't shouldn't do on Sabbath all day long. If somebody could be righteous by worrying about doing this or that, uh, I was. I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. <laughs> so I grew up in that ideology, and, and I'm in California now where a lot of Adventists have thrown that completely out the world, wind, thrown completely out the door, I should say. And they are into doing whatever they want on Sabbath. So it's... I'm sorry, what? How are we listening for the Spirit to lead us? Yeah. I guess. Yeah. But you had another thought. <laughs> no, no. Okay, why don't I have prayer and then I'll, I'll stop. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the revelation you've made in Jesus of who you really are. We thank you that we don't have to be Babylonian and, and worship the kind of God that the Babylonians worship. We ask that though that where we have blind spots or areas of our lives where we really haven't grasped this 
that you will show it to us and continue to lead us. Lead us and guide us especially in how we relate to the church in the future. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.